Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. So today we have a very special interview that we're going to do. We last season, especially, we got reached out to by a couple of, uh, I guess, agents, literary agents who were looking to do promo for their um client <laughs> for their book releases and so we took on a couple of them um and then we said no to a couple more but when i got this email i just knew that i had to actually interview this author because the book itself was actually a true crime book i should probably say what the book actually is but it's called the league of lady poisoners by lisa perrin I was super excited to get this, and I texted Britt as soon as it came in, because I was like, this is probably one of the prettiest books I've ever gotten. (laughs) Um, I will, you know, we'll obviously share a picture of it later on Instagram when we share this episode, (laughs) but she has done a lot of illustrated book covers for a lot of books. You might have recognized some of them if you are a frequent reader of young adult fiction. Um... I think the most recent one that I would guess would be like kind of popular is Once Upon a Broken Heart, I believe, by Stephanie Garber. Um, but yeah, so if you like pull up her her repertoire, she's got a lot of stuff under her belt, but this is her debut novel. Um, unfortunately, Brit could not be there for the interview. And why is that Brit? <laughs> I was at the Titanic Museum. Yes. you you. It was at the one in Tennessee, right? Yeah. And there were... Okay, I'll fucking like kids. And there's some people that brought their kids in, and they were screaming <laughs> to the top of their lungs. <laughs> it's a very sad time. I don't want your kids yeah. screaming in my ear. It's weird that you would not only bring a disruptive child into a museum that's supposed to be, you know, kind of like a memorial, but also to not take them out. Also, not like try that's... to parent them or yeah. console them. Yeah. And then let them run and hit me in the leg multiple times. That feels disrespectful. It was. But yeah, so she was in Tennessee while I did the interview. So what you're going to hear is basically just me and Lisa, you know, shooting the shit. (laughs) She was very sweet. I'm very glad that I got the chance to interview her. Um, So I'm just going to go ahead and play the clips. All right. Well, this is my interview with is it Lisa Perrin? Is that correct? Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. I just wanted to make sure because I know sometimes, you know, names look a certain way but aren't spelled correctly. No, mine's <laughs> are pretty straightforward. It's like, oh, which please. is helpful. <laughs> Thank you, though. I appreciate that. As we get started, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Certainly. And thank you so much for having me today. This is so exciting. Um, So I'm Lisa Perrin. That was perfectly pronounced. I'm an (laughs) illustrator uh, and a professor, full-time professor of illustration at the Maryland Institute College of Art, which is in Baltimore. Um, But I'm originally from Long Island, New York. And uh, I've been a full-time illustrator for the past 10 years. I mostly do book covers. Um, and I've loved doing book covers because I've always had this passion for storytelling and pictures and words and mm-hmm. that, that all really comes together really, really beautifully, I think, in the most recent project that I'm yes, here to talk sure. about today. 
<laughs> so uh, the book that we are talking about today is your debut. Yes. I have it sitting right here. Oh. Uh, it is The League of Lady Poisoners. This is one of the most beautiful books I've ever seen, oh, by the shucks. way. Um, <laughs> when I got the physical copy, I just, I wasn't expecting it to be so nice, like with the, with this edges oh, and everything yeah. too. Yeah, like, I went hard. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> Thank um, you. So because it's your debut, what was it that inspired you to not only write in general, but also just this topic specifically? Why focus only on poisoners? Totally. I That's always people's first question, like, but why? <laughs> you know, you could have, yeah. I know, like I say it in the beginning, but my mom kept saying, why not a children's book? Why not a nice children's <laughs> picture book? Because you're an illustrator. That's you're... what everyone, I think, was kind of expecting. And I was like, I don't think yeah. that's me. Um, I, I imagine like a lot of your listeners in the true crime fan base, like this is just what I'm fascinated by. This is, these are my interests. This is my sort of obsession. When I have free time, what I'm doing is listening to true crime podcasts and watching Mm -hmm. TV shows and listening to old datelines while I'm doing other things. So (laughs) this was definitely, uh, up my alley, um, just for background, um, way back in undergrad, I double majored in art and in English. So it was always like an interest. I think my life's dream was to be an author illustrator. And that's what Mm -hmm. I always wanted to do. But then it was too big and too scary to actually like sit down and do it. So it took me a long time since Mm -hmm. then till now to actually make that happen. But yeah, I think I, I knew I always wanted to write and illustrate my own book. I think I was just kind of waiting for a topic that I was so excited about that I was willing to spend all this time and all this energy devoting like a big chunk of my life to it, essentially. And um, the story I tell is that my best friend sent me an article about Julia Tofana, who's one of the women poisoners mentioned in the book, Mm -hmm. uh, who's from like Renaissance Italy, who sold poison and supposedly her special (laughs) concoction of poison was used to kill like 600 men, which may or may not be true. That That was a confession (laughs) given under torture. But I was like, Mm -hmm. that's bonkers. Why does everybody know about this? Like, why are we all talking about this? And I think that led me down this path of there's got to be more interesting stories like this. Mm-hmm. And then I think the poison ended up being a sort of interesting lens because I knew I was interested in history and true crime, especially women's history. And I kept coming across these stories of poison specifically. And I wondered, oh, there's this like connection, right, where people think women use poison. Is that true? Mm-hmm. And then asking that question kind of led me down the, okay. the larger path of the whole process. I guess as an academic, as a professor, you know, you're you're well-versed in research and, and all that. Uh, sort um, of. I'm an illustrator. I'm an art professor. I, so I admit yeah, it was but... a little bit like I was like, I should know more about this given my vocation. <laughs> I, I actually, yeah. I was like, maybe I'll ask the art history professors for help <laughs> just because mm-hmm. the research part was a little bit new to me. Yeah. Okay. So what was it that actually like first got you interested in true crime? Because you said that, you know, in your free time, you're listening to podcasts. (laughs) So clearly it's a special interest you've had for a while. But was there like a specific case that kind of like got you interested in true crime? That's a great question. I've actually like given this a lot of thought, like why is why true crime and especially why women, I think, in particular, are so interested in true crime? Like all of the sweetest, nicest women I know like, are <laughs> yes. listening to these. Ter- yes. And I, I'm sure you identify with this. Like, like what mm-hmm. is this phenomenon specifically of like really kind people <laughs> and like who are yeah. obsessed with like true crime? And I think my theory is it's like a safe way for us to approach and deal with and think about the things that we're most scared of, like our biggest fears. It's like a safe way to like 
because it's not happening to you. It's not happening to someone you love. It's a story. Yeah. And you can kind of start to, you can let your brain engage with it. Otherwise, it's just something that's too scary to even give yourself permission to think about. Um, yeah, so that's one that theory. <laughs> that's what I did. The other <laughs> one I have is that it's like research that I'm like, I don't want this to happen to me. So if I listen to enough true crime stories and I don't know if that might be like something to bring up in therapy, but um, just this idea that like, I'm going to know what not to do because I'm going to learn. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different ways in. And then the final thing is, I think it's just they're fascinating stories, right? They're just great examples of storytelling mm -hmm. where you have all of the ingredients of these interesting characters, the sort of building mm -hmm. climactic action, and then uh, hopefully some kind of resolution and justice. I hate when they don't get solved. Like, I can't handle that. Yes. But I love yeah. when there's that perfect little bow and they go to trial and they go to prison and justice is served. Um, yeah. So I think they're just like, I don't know if that's like a good answer for like why I personally got into it. That's more of like a sociological phenomenon of why I, I and mean, many other people. I'll take people. whatever answer you have. But that's, yeah, I, entered it, I answered that in more of a, a bigger <laughs> sort of sense. Yeah, and I think I think that definitely makes sense engaging in it. these stories. We do have somewhat of a, t a detachment from it because it's not happening to someone close to us. Yeah. And I think the the uh, main thing that we need to remember as true crime fans, as people who are consuming this content, is that these did happen to real yes. people. Um, so like going through and reading this book, like I had to temper kind of my responses <laughs> almost because um, it's like I completely understand why a lot of these women chose the route that they did. <laughs> but I had to like be like, OK, but they still murdered some yes, real people. It's, they're like, still murderers. Yeah. So it's like I can't it's not like a fiction novel or something where I can be like, OK, yeah, you know, queen queen behavior or something right. like that. Like I have to remind myself like these are re real people. These are yeah. real events that happen. And while their motivations might be understandable, it doesn't excuse Never. what they did. Yeah. And I've, I've also had to say that, too, because I know that I definitely was oh, like profiling the women um, because mm -hmm. who were accused or convicted of these crimes. But I think it's so important what you just said. And I appreciate that you said that at the end of the day, the, the victims are very real, too. Mm -hmm. And even though we can empathize or even maybe understand some of the behavior, it never justifies um, yeah. criminal action or, or harm to another person or murder. And I just want to say that for the record, even though I'm so interested yeah. in them, I don't. These are not heroes. These are not women to emulate. They're you know, these yes. are definitely um and there's it's a more couple of an of academic yeah like look at them <laughs> yeah it was just I wanted more context I wanted a little yeah. bit more than sort of that blurb we get that's sort of a splashy summary uh, you know mm -hmm. that like well what was more of the story sort of surrounding yeah. the, the events and the crime like and and usually the story is adds so many more layers and so much more nuance to the event that I appreciate that you can still come to it and say, yes, she's a murderer, but I also kind of get where she's coming from a little bit. And that's yeah. an interesting place to be. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, I um, my major when I was in college was criminal psychology okay. and forensic yes. psychology. So like totally. that always kind of fascinated me was learning the motivation behind why somebody would do it. And I think context adds so much to it that, oh, yeah. um, especially with like historical cases, we don't get a lot of that. We just get, you know, the perspective of the journalists who yep. are reporting on it. And 
God, journalists, like, I thought, like, today's journalists were sensational. No, it's so much better. <laughs> like, yeah, doing research on some of the historical cases we've covered on the show, I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, there's oh, just, yeah. There's so many, you know, they could just publish whatever. Yeah, I, it's really true. And they'll be like, <laughs> it makes it difficult like to a, really, like, figure out the true, like, body counts for a lot of these people. Yeah. <laughs> no, the journalists are totally biased. Um, and they'll use language that we would never even, like, you know, like in the 1920s, they'll be like, and this dandy little dame slaughtered five, in, you know, five excellent businessmen, you know, and it's just the yes. way that even the, the, the word choice, the way they phrase it, mm -hmm. um, it ends up really skewing how the public reads it and reacts to it um, and how we mm -hmm. think about all of the parties involved. No, I, I don't think I was prepared for a lot of that, like the way mm -hmm. some of these cases were reported. And I'm like, well, no wonder there's all this bias. This is how the stories are being shared to the public. Yeah. Yeah, and we still get a little bit of that in journalism today, but I think people recognize it more because it's being like pointed out by people like, hey, yes, totally. This is be like this newspaper source, what they're reporting might be true, but the way they're wording it is framing it and preparing you to ingest the story in a specific way. So I appreciated that the book like it did have the context, it also approached it from more of like a third like a an objective third party standpoint mm -hmm. as well so it was like academic but also there was like you know some some humor in there which is definitely al aligned with our podcast for sure oh, good. um so for the listeners sake could you just tell us a little bit about your book the league of lady poisoners yes absolutely so the league of lady poisoners uh the subtitle is an illustrated true stories of dangerous women uh, so basically, this is a collection of stories. It is nonfiction. They're true stories of accused or convicted women poisoners from throughout history and the globe. Uh, so I really tried to find a very diverse array of examples of women who had um, some sort of reputation for being involved with poison or poisoning other people. Um, and it's organized thematically the chapters, so it's not chronological. Uh, so you'll have chapters that have people from the ancient world and then, you know, someone in the 1950s. Uh, mm -hmm. So it really does kind of tie these stories together by, by theme. And I'm careful to say theme and I don't know, motive is part of it. Motive is a really hard thing to discern. And sometimes there are multiple motives at play. So I, I really mm -hmm. sort of did my best to navigate that. Um, but some of those chapters are professional poisoners, uh, escape and defiance, Money and greed, power and politics, anger and revenge, and love and obsession. And I think I settled on those because they're very universal human themes. And sure. I, they were also the ones that I've, I found kind of fit the stories the best as I was trying to categorize them, even though it could be very challenging to do that. But the whole yeah. book is very lavishly and richly illustrated um, mm -hmm. from start to finish. And the actual book itself has a, a cover that makes it look like, a, like an old Victorian tome that's got a lot of bright green and gold on a black background so yes and yeah. it's shiny so. and it's very <laughs> importantly it's, my favorite color is shiny so yes yes i wanted it to be something that people would like see it in a bookstore on a library shelf and go ooh, <laughs> like and to stop yes. and maybe notice it um so yeah. that i definitely wanted something a little bit shiny showy yeah and I think I think you accomplished that because I always call it my bird brain. But anytime I see like a book that has like the, the foil on it, I'm like, ooh, shiny. Magpies. <laughs> We're all just magpies. <laughs> and so um, 
as I was reading, I didn't realize until maybe about a quarter of the way into the book that you had also done the illustrations. And um, you said that you were a professor um, of art and illustration. Mm -hmm. um, how long have you been an artist? Is that something that you've been doing basically your whole life? Yes. Um, although professionally more recently, only more recently, yeah. um, I was definitely a kid. I wasn't a professional child, uh, although I like that term professional child. I like, yeah. Um, yeah, I was definitely a kid who was creative. I was drawing all the time. My mom is very crafty. So she was very supportive of that. And like I said, in, in college, I double majored in drawing and painting and in English. And they were both my two passions and I could never really choose but I, I always loved illustration and I ended up getting a, going to earn a master's degree in illustration from the college where I'm now teaching at. Um, okay. And I just loved illustration so much that um, the sort of the writing interest kind of fell by the wayside. And I was a working professional illustrator pretty much right away out of graduate school. I got hired uh, by the American Greetings Card Company in Cleveland, Ohio. So I was an in-house <laughs> cool. greeting card illustrator, which is totally different than Poison Book. I don't know if anyone would ever marry those two sort of ideas. I drew a lot I of birthday cakes not. and flowers, and I loved it there. It was a wonderful job. Um, mm -hmm. And I was freelancing the whole time. Um, I'm mostly a book cover illustrator. That's pretty much the bread and butter of most of the freelance work that I, that I do. Um, I don't know if you would have ever recognized or seen it in other places. I, I'd seen a couple because I was looking through your Instagram oh, the other night and I recognized a couple of the book covers as being very popular, like YA books or yes. from popular YA authors. And I have a bookstagram, so I've seen a couple of the ah, covers, but I didn't realize that you had done it. So yes. now that I have that connection, like that's really that's cool. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Yeah, mostly YA. I do a lot of fantasy, mm -hmm. a lot of YA book covers. And I think I was I was loved doing that but I always was like mm -hmm. I wonder what I what would my cover for my book be like I realized no one was just going to give me my dream project and so I which is a good lesson it took me a long time mm -hmm. to get there and I <laughs> yeah. ended up thinking okay if I want to write and illustrate a book I think I'm going to have to go pitch it and propose it because um, yeah. I yeah I'm going to keep getting hired to do book covers until I tell them I can do something else until I should mm -hmm. demonstrate to that or show the you know them the publishing the world <laughs> Yeah, I can I can relate to that because I'm I've been planning a novel, you know, since like yes. high school. And yes. it's not until now that I'm actually really starting to like put effort into it and being like, well, nobody else is going to write the story. You have to yes. do it. So yes. I totally I totally get that. It's true. It, but it takes a while, I think, for that to mm -hmm. like become knowable to us. We're like, oh, I, I don't need permission. No one's going to tell me write your novel. Like I, if I want to yep. do it, I'm going to have to. Just just do it and it mm -hmm. in little bits and pieces wherever I can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know you mentioned this in the book, but studies claim that women tend to choose poison as their weapon of choice more so than men. Um, and you had mentioned, I believe somewhere in the beginning of the book, that that's not exactly true. So yes. can you expand on that? And what was it that you found like in your research as you were writing the book that made you believe otherwise? Yes. Hey, we'll be right back. Our sponsors are talking. Um, and I was going to say, I don't know if I'm aware of these studies that claim that women do poison more. <laughs> I think that those might, that sort of this like court of public opinion thing where we believe that, but did we ever really yeah. see that anywhere? I think that's sort of this yeah. like cultural phenomenon that we think that. So mm -hmm. one of my first 
jobs when I pitched this book and they said, okay, go for it, was like, okay, so is this true? Are women mm-hmm. somehow more connected to poison than, than men? As the, a lot of pop culture sources have claimed, I think I cited some of these in the introduction as well, but it's mentioned in a Sherlock Holmes film, that exact quote that mm-hmm. women, you know, poison is a woman's weapon. There's an Agatha yep. Christie novel that has it. And most recently it was on Game of Thrones. They say that exact same thing. Um, So I started researching and everywhere I was looking, I was finding like, oh, that's actually like a a misnomer that's misrepresented. And I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, no, my thesis, my idea for the book, does it still work? (laughs) And then I realized, oh, it's actually even more interesting that like, why do we think this if it isn't true? So I actually pulled Mm -hmm. up that statistic in case I was quizzed on it. (laughs) Um, because I want to make sure I I get that information right. So uh, this is from an article that Deborah Blum wrote for Wired in 2013, uh, and she has written a number of books about poison and is really an authority, I think, on the subject. Um, But this article is called The Imperfect Myth of the Female Poisoner, and in it she clarifies that poison is actually a really gender-neutral weapon, and if you actually look at the statistics... And this is from the U.S. Department of Justice's report on homicide trends in the United States from 1980 to 2008 that 39.5% of poison murders were female and 60.5% were men. So that's actually, and again, there's definitely, there's more men that use poison than women. And if you, but you need to have the context for that quote that so many more men than women commit murder that the all weapons, all ways of committing murder are perpetrated more by men just because there's so many more numbers behind that. Yeah. So that's that's definitely an interesting statistic. And I think getting that out there is important, too, because, like you said, it's been perpetuated for so long that, you know, more women choose poison, mm-hmm. um, I guess, because the assumption is that women are, you know, more docile or not as yes. violent as men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, but is so, that true? Well, and where does yeah. that come from? And that's, you know, an, an interesting sort of cultural and psychological, emotional question, like that we associate sure. women with certain traits and men with certain yes. traits. When mm-hmm. the reality is we're all human beings and we're all capable of the full range of human emotion and expression. And unfortunately, m- harm and murder is, is part of that. Yeah, for sure. And then with the way that you kind of organized the book in the different themes, you know, motive is very much the same throughout a lot of, uh, you know, history. Yeah. Like everybody has these certain, I guess, fundamental things like greed you know like people want money that's always kind of been the thing (laughs) so it's it's always fascinating to look back at these historical cases and realize oh human nature is human nature um it's it's having to really combat that uh our animal instincts i guess you could say (laughs) yes our lizard brains i call them (laughs) yes (laughs) it's like deep in Uh, there like thousands of years ago we have so much more technology now and information and we're still mm-hmm. sort of these simple creatures who want yeah. money and want love and to be loved and feel loved and safety mm-hmm. and like those fundamental things about us do not do not change. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, and it's just it's so interesting to see. You mentioned, I think, in the foreword that it was you had to kind of narrow down which mm. stories you would have in the in the book and then you also wanted to include some diverse stories as much as possible so what was some of the criteria that you used to narrow down the stories that you did include 
Yes, that's a great question. This was kind of the hardest part. When I was researching, I have a, a Google Excel sheet that has, I think, a hundred <laughs> um, examples that I found. So for the record, like there, if you're interested in this topic, there are so many more interesting stories about it. And I basically had like their name, what country they were from, uh, a brief summary of sort of what happened or what they did or what, what they were accused of. And then uh, I, later I added the themes, like trying to figure out like, well, what were the themes at play here? Um, like I said, I really did want this book to be diverse. Um, I will say in some ways, I think I fell short of that just because it was so hard, unfortunately, to find stories outside of the Western canon that covered stories about women and crime. Um, or if there was something, it would be like a sentence or two. Like I, there were mm -hmm. definitely stories where I was like, I want that one so badly, but I cannot find enough information or enough credible information uh, to yeah. cite and source in a book. So that was the big one where uh, there were some that I had to omit just because there, there wasn't enough information. And unfortunately, the, the people who had books written about them and lots of newspaper articles about them did tend to be white women uh, or mm -hmm. affluent women, um, which does not represent necessarily who the average poisoner really was. It, it really is more of a, a crime of desperation, but mm -hmm. crimes committed by uh, folks in poverty um, or folks of color did not get the same attention in the media. So yeah. unfortunately, there's just aren't, I believe that these crimes happened. <laughs> I know that they must have happened, but uh, it's so yeah. hard to find enough information to, to write yeah. a, a, a chapter on that. So on that uh, same kind of note, was there one that didn't make the cut in particular that you really wanted to include? Yes, there were so many. Um, I this has surprised me. This is everyone's favorite question to ask me now, like who's not in there, which I find so yeah. interesting. <laughs> Um, I actually, I also did homework and prepared this question as well. Um, so I'm going to look back to my answer just so I have some of the specific information yeah. as, I, as I recount it. Um, so for me, uh, this actually started as an art project. I had done, I started with the illustrations. Um, okay. And the third illustration I had done for this was of the Radium Girls. Um, and yeah. if folks aren't familiar with the story of the Radium Girls, um, it's really heartbreaking. Uh, basically, it's, the, it's probably one of the, it's devastating, but basically yeah. women are entering the workforce around World War II and a really sought after position was um, painting the self-luminous paint onto watch dials. And especially a lot of young women uh, took this mm -hmm. job. Um, and they were told that the luminous paint, which was made of radium, was harmless. And to uh, point the brushes by putting them in their mouths to like paint very fine, delicate lines. And of course, they ended up experiencing the horrible consequences of radium poisoning. And the company totally denied all wrongdoing. And um, these women suffered so greatly. And eventually, some brave women actually took the radium dial company to court. And after about a decade of di difficult litigation, they won. And this mm -hmm. case, um, helped advance some labor rights and safety standards in the United States. So I just thought that was such an amazing story, heartbreaking, but also just incredible. But they didn't, uh, they didn't fall under my larger umbrella of like being, they weren't lady poisoners. It was, I had yeah. originally proposed a chapter on women who were victims of poisoning, which okay. I think is still very interesting. But when we were mm -hmm. looking at the whole book, my editor was like, if we had to do that, this is the one thing that isn't like the others. 
if we had to cut something. So we ended up cutting that whole chapter. And I loved that illustration too. Mm -hmm. So that for me, that's the one that got away. Yeah, that's totally understandable. I had heard about the Radium Girls and like, it's just so sad that <gasps> they explicitly lied and then took no responsibility exactly. for it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And unfortunately, there's still companies that do stuff like that today. And it's a sobering oh, reminder sure. that, you know, we have to be mindful and do our own research and keep ourselves safe. Yeah, as, as much as we possibly can. As much yeah. as we can. <laughs> so of the ones that are in the book, do you have a favorite? And oh. what is it that makes that one stand out? I know that there's a lot of good ones in there, so... <laughs> Yeah, for me, like, these are the ones that, like, made it through all the cuts and, like, they're all, like, so special to me and mm -hmm. they're sort of my babies. So it's hard to pick a favorite. It's hard to call poison my, women poisoners my babies, but um, <laughs> just in terms of, like, how much time I spent with them in their stories. Yeah. Um, there's, I like some of them for different reasons. Some I think are just, like, so weird. Um, and there are others that I think are funny and then there are others I think are kind of tragic or inspiring. So I think if I had to pick a favorite, the one I might come back to is Julia Tofana because she was the one that started the whole sequence of events that led to this moment where her story yeah. about um, basically selling poison in Renaissance era Italy to women who were in abusive marriages. Um, because mm -hmm. at that time, it's a Catholic patriarchal society. Divorce is not an option. And if you were in a bad or uh, abusive marriage there was no way out unless somebody died and it, it speaks so much to the culture and that's not unique to that time and place that that specific situation was a common thread through a lot of my stories that I found I did notice that um, yeah which was heartbreaking it actually made me gave me a newfound appreciation for divorce as a concept that like yeah. it's it's a good thing for a society to have that lever that if two people are in a marriage and it's bad that you have a way to get out that yeah yes I I, it, like, I don't know if I appreciate Murder is not the only option. Murder <laughs> should never be the only option. <laughs> yeah. um, the fact that 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 they were, can you imagine being in a situation where you're going through the options and that's the the best one? What a horrible predicament to be in! What a horrible situation for society to also have created around you. Um, yeah, and how desperate they must have been to even been contemplating that choice. I should hope. Um, yeah. and not because they're like, you know, I've always wanted to do this anyway. Um, yeah, like no. there, there are some who were had <laughs> there some are definitely some <laughs> or I'm like, yeah, you just have no conscience. They just, they didn't yeah. care. Um, but uh, if you look at her story or at least the legend of her story, cause hers is very hard to validate and it's definitely mm -hmm. become sort of folklore. The idea of this woman in this time and place creating a business that just Say, like allowed women to leave these dangerous marriages by buying a vial of her Aquatofana, a special brand of poison. And then supposedly that she's in business for like 50 years and, yeah. you know, it doesn't come to an end until the, someone spills the beans about what's in the soup that she gave her husband and then the papal authorities yeah. go after her. Um, it's just an astonishing story. And I love the idea of a sort of woman folk hero, sort of yeah. taking these tropes of, of women sort of as healers and wise women making these tinctures and salves and almost witch-like, um, mm -hmm. but being a successful businesswoman and using it to, mm -hmm. to help other women. That's one that I, I just thought was, was so neat. Just a cool story. I really like that one. What was the one that I was just reading? The, the Queen of Madagascar. That one was just so crazy to me. <laughs> yes. Um, well, can you tell me more? Like, what's the, sorry, now I'm like turning it on you. What stood out about no, that good. for you? It's, 
I think it was just the fact that like she did the trials by, you know, they ate that nut and if they were able to you yes. know, vomit the chicken skin and whatnot then they'd be considered innocent and you liken that right. to the Salem witch trials and and well not yes. just the Salem witch trials but the <laughs> swimming the witch witches trials. yeah yeah it was just I don't know it's just fascinating when you can kind of connect like these mindsets across you know generations and and across you know different cultural barriers too yeah that was one I had never even heard of that. So that was me one neither. of the things where I was like, why don't we all know about this? This is yeah. bonkers to me. Yeah. And just but, the way yeah. that she was like so fiercely protective of her culture and religion and all that of Madagascar and making sure that, you know, these uh, Christian colonizers uh, weren't yeah. coming in and, and evangelizing and turning people into, uh, I guess, what she would view as <laughs> as heretics yeah. and, and whatnot. So, yeah, it was just it was super fascinating. I, I really enjoyed yeah. that one. Like, it's weird to say oh. that I enjoyed it, but it was just like, I know it, there was a lot because she she <laughs> did result. It resulted in the murder of so many of her own people. Yeah. Like that's the like the the complex part about that is you can almost appreciate her wanting to protect her culture and her religion mm -hmm. and being so fiercely devoted to that. But on the same hand, she she. <laughs> harmed yeah. and killed so many of her own people the violence it's it's really hard to reconcile these kind of exactly. two parts of her but yeah that's another story where I was really just like that's so there were so many stories where I was surprised I didn't know them before um, yeah. and that was the really exciting exciting part for me because I'm a true cram true cram I'm a true <laughs> crime fan yeah <laughs> I do cram it in though um uh, but <laughs> and yet I didn't know some of these mm -hmm. that feel like these should be like better known to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that yeah, was there, there are a couple of well-known names like, you know, Catherine de Medici and, and um, uh, Lucrezia Borgia and, you know, just a couple of other ones that we've probably heard the name of, but a lot of the ones in there I hadn't heard of either. It's funny because I was doing research on Belle Gunnis for an episode and then I yes. opened the book and I saw that there was a chapter on there Belle in there. I was like, there we go. <laughs> yeah. That's another one that's just... Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to it. And that's why it's taken me so long to research this episode. <laughs> oh, totally. Because <laughs> I'm like, there's just, there's so many like twists and turns. I'm like, wow. I know. Okay. And it keeps going. Like each thing mm -hmm. alone would have been enough to make her like one of the worst criminals. And then it just keeps going. Yeah. And that's, and that one's that's got a the, twist ending. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It was like is the twist ending was I think the the part that was like I need to do an episode on this because yeah, this is it's just this is a little crazy. <laughs> gripping, yeah. Yes. So I know you had talked about how um, you know you had done uh, various illustrations for book covers and stuff before, but did you have an idea of what you wanted your book to look like before you wrote it, or is that something that kind of came about after the fact? Ooh, I love that question. Um, so I was a little intimidated because having done book covers for everyone else, everyone was like, wow, mm -hmm. I can't imagine what your cover is going to be like. And then I got like scared <laughs> and sort of That's paralyzed fair. with the fear, like, oh, it has to be the best cover I've ever done. Yes. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to go hard. <laughs> like I, mm -hmm. I wanted it to be special. My personal philosophy about, and I love, I love books. And I think it's amazing that we have digital editions and ways to, cause it creates more accessibility for folks. Yeah. But yeah. I do think there's something so special about having a physical copy of a book, especially a book that you love. And I think mm -hmm. I knew I wanted something that was both going to be a, a book that people might enjoy reading and having around, but also like an art object that folks might just yeah. want to have in their homes and display because they like it. 
So I, I knew that I wanted it to have that. And I also, my dream was I wanted to make something that would have made 13-year-old Lisa lose her mind if she had seen it in the <laughs> store. Like this is like my 13-year-old self's fever dream of like what a perfect yeah. book would be like. Um, so I, while I was working on the book, and the cover was the last thing. Um, mm -hmm. So it was all written by then. It was all illustrated, uh, the interior artwork by then. I knew I wanted to do a nod to the Victorian era because it comes up a lot in the stories yeah. and uh, it often, in my research, I saw, I kept seeing the phrase, the golden age of poisoning associated with the Victorian era. And I said, ooh, yeah. well, you know, that's a gift. Just take that um, and yeah. did research into what Victorian era book covers look like. And they were often kind of this cloth bound with these embossed or debossed metallic one or two color foils. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I collected a whole bunch of images of that and sort of used that to guide my sketches. And I knew I, I didn't want to just copy one of those. I sort of wanted to update it and make it my own. Um, and much to the credit of the folks at uh, Chronicle, which is the publisher, and I proposed this. They said, yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, that's great. Because usually the process for book covers, there's a lot more cooks in the kitchen and you have yeah. to try to make everybody happy. But this time it was just like me and the art director and she was totally on board. Um, which was thrilling for me because I haven't had that kind of creative control over any book cover I've ever done before. So she really was supportive. She was really a collaborator in that. And we did a number of different color studies trying to figure out what were like, I knew I wanted a green that was going to look like a Shields green or sort of a mm -hmm. classic poison green. Yeah. Uh, so we had to find just the right one. And yeah, it, there was definitely, and I have posted on my Instagram, you can kind of see the journey of some of the different sketches. I'm like swiping with my finger to show you how you can look through the, <laughs> the post. But uh, yeah, there's definitely, it was a process, but I, I knew I wanted something that felt both historical, but a little creepy uh, yeah. and, and pretty and beautiful. I think that combination was definitely what I was going for. Well, I think you certainly achieved it. I mean, you've got the <laughs> you. you've got the scorpions, the snakes, yes. the spiders. Um, you know, it's just it's got so many little details that yeah. like it, it takes a little bit to appreciate. Um, and then like the poisonous flowers and everything. Yes, and I love just, that you noticed that. Yes, <laughs> yes, all so, everything on the cover, um, all the flowers are known poisonous plants that I talk about and all of the insects or creatures are venomous or poisonous creatures mm -hmm. that I talk about in the book too so that's like a little easter egg for folks who are paying attention yeah and I love that you had that poisonous uh, the poison primer at the beginning too because oh, like there you. are some of those that I didn't actually know about so because like you know you hear about arsenic and cyanide yeah. and and like those ones but then the there ones. are yeah, there are plenty of other smaller ones that people might not be aware of. So I think that was that was a great addition to it. Oh, um, thank you. It's almost it's almost like a textbook, but like a fun textbook. <laughs> yeah, I was I was like, oh, I, I am not qualified to write a textbook. I should be careful with this. But I I felt it would help the reader understand the stories more if they knew more about what these types of poisons were, where they came from, and what they did. Um, yeah. So I felt like a little bit of a information it's at the start. Providing context, yeah. So overall, how long did it take you to write the book, including, you know, like the time it took to research and getting uh, an agent, getting it published? How long did that process take for you? Yeah, this this is my magnum opus. This is like the, <laughs> my biggest project to date. It, it definitely took years. Um, the project began in 2020, 
um, during the dark days of quarantine and yeah. the pandemic when I had a little time on my hands and I was like, <laughs> I want to do a personal project. Yeah. Um, and then I, it took a little while for me to build up the illustrations and for me to even realize, I think I have a book pitch. Uh-oh, who do I tell? I was very, very fortunate that I was able to get connected to an editor at the publisher, uh, which is really, Chronicle is my dream publisher, so I'm so thrilled that that worked out. Um, and they usually it's this back and forth process, but they right away were like, oh, I like that. Let's do that. And I know that that is not that is an exception <laughs> and not the rule. I got That's very true. lucky with my first book proposal. Um, I didn't have an agent. I proposed it myself, which is okay. also not usually the way to go. Um, yeah, so like I said, I, I, oh, thank you. well, I like to think I had some clap by then. I was like, well, I've illustrated other covers and I, I you know, I, I was hoping that, you know, that they'd still take me seriously. And I, like I said, I, I was very fortunate with this, but then yeah, start to finish, uh, probably about two and a half years, three years, wow. which actually isn't that long when like, I could have spent five years on, easily on this. Like I wanted more time. I wanted to, I would, if it was up to me, this book would have been even bigger. I think they made the right <laughs> call though. I think it's a good length. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And um, it, because you have so many that you had kind of gathered during research, do you have like a sequel planned or are there any other books that you kind of have planned in the future? <sighs> You can. I know that yes, sometimes that's you the can't other question say. people keep asking. Me. <laughs> I know sometimes you. Like, I wish I had some secret say, I can't but... say. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I don't. I just don't have a plan. I don't know what's next. I wish I had some cool secret thing on the back yeah. burner. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually curious to hear what, like, when when the book does come out, um, what folks, you know, responses to it, and kind of is there something that people want to see next, uh, mm-hmm. you know, after this from me. Um, I do hope this is not my last book. I hope that there are more. Um, mm-hmm. But basically now I'm starting to look through like what are other topics that I find really interesting that are both ha- that have this quality of being historical but maybe have a, a bit of a darkness or weirdness or unexpectedness to them that I could illustrate or something that I haven't quite seen done before. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's where I am now. Okay. Well, I will definitely keep an eye out because I really, yeah, because I, I really, I really enjoyed the book and, you know, it, it oh, was right you. up my alley. Like when, when we got the email to, to talk about, with the opportunity to talk to you about it, I was like, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it exceeded my expectations. So I'm really excited for this book to come out. <laughs> oh, that um, makes my day. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> you're so welcome. So can you tell our listeners where they would be able to, you know, find a copy of your book and when it comes out? Yes. Excellent question. Thank you. <laughs> um, it is released officially September 19th of 2023, and you can find it wherever books are sold uh, in physical reality and online. I recommend supporting your local independent bookstore where you can, and not to forget libraries. Yes. Going to your local library, too. Libraries are fantastic resources for people who might not be able to spend the money, you know? Absolutely. And libraries are like, librarians are the hero of this research book project for me. Like, I am so indebted to amazing librarians who helped me find some really weird and really obscure sources (laughs) for this book and never said 
Hey, why do you need that? <laughs> like no one yes. ever. I picked up all these murder books one day, and nobody said a thing. And I was like, I got away with something, and so I like run out yeah. of the library with my stack of books I, in my arms. Yeah, I definitely feel that. I'm like, if anybody were to look at my search history when I'm like in the process of researching oh, an episode, they would be so concerned. <laughs> Oh, I'm convinced I'm on an FBI search list. Like, there's no, because I was typing in, like, which poison works the fastest? Which poison? Like, things that no one should need to know unless yes. they're up to something or writing a book. Um, yeah. So I'm definitely, I was very paranoid for a little while. And now my friends, the big joke is no one wants to go to lunch with me. No one will eat anything that I prepare. Um, yeah. I mean, you like, do have all that knowledge. I know, but it's a burden. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything with it. It that's, is good. That's, good but to know. that's the big joke now. And I'm like, no, it's okay. I still please still invite me to lunch. <laughs> well, if I'm ever up in the area, because I actually used to live in Maryland, I'll, I'll you know you? maybe reach out and we can grab lunch. Yeah, I was in yes. Southern Maryland, so not in Baltimore, but I gotcha. I went up to Baltimore a couple times. So totally. yeah. if I'm ever in the area, I'll reach out. Yeah, please. Maybe we please can do lunch do. together. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love that. So um, where can people find you on social media? I know you have Instagram, um, but yes. I think you also have TikTok and, you know, just. <laughs> Sorry, the TikTok. I'm trying so hard on TikTok. I am not That's a young okay. person anymore. And... I, I'm with you. I'm usually on there just to watch videos. I don't post as much as I should. Well, but I'm trying for the book to like promote the book. I'm like trying to get on there and I'm like, yeah. I don't know. Should I do a dance? Like, I don't know what, what the <laughs> people want. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm on uh, the internets. Uh, <laughs> I usually my last name online mostly, which is Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N, and I go by Made by Perrin. So that's usually the handle on every platform. So that's Made okay. by Perrin on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, I think also possibly the new TikTok, which only has two videos. Yeah. Um, but please do find me there. If you read the book, if you liked the book, I can't wait to hear from people. I think that's going to be the most exciting part. I want to know mm -hmm. what stories stayed with them or how that, how reading it maybe changed some of their perceptions about some of these stories or some of these notions we have about women in poison. And if anyone ever wants to like dress up like a lady poisoner and like <laughs> show me that, that would just make my life. I don't know. I'm just so excited for, for people to get to see it. I think that would be it. really cool. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My co-host couldn't be here today, but I'm I'm excited that I got a chance to talk with you and, you know, to read this book and promote it. <laughs> well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you so much again to Lisa Perrin for taking the time out to chat with us. Well, mainly me. Uh, the League of Lady Poisoners by Lisa Perrin is available now anywhere books are sold. So if you're still looking for that perfect gift for the true crime lover in your life, I would highly recommend this one. Like I said, the physical copy is beautiful. It'll look so nice on your shelf or on your coffee table. And then you can explain to your guests why you're reading books about poison. I would also echo Lisa's sentiment of purchasing in-store or online directly from a local or independent bookstore rather than the major retailers or seeing if you can find one at your library. Uh, that is all from us. So you can find us on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We're on the artist formerly known as Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We're on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We're on Facebook at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. And we're also sort of on YouTube at the same username. When you subscribe to Shockingly Wicked for $4.99 a month here on Spotify, you can get access to my full interview with Lisa, along with full interviews with all previous guests, unedited bonus episodes, and more. I'm not going to promise how often because, you know, we don't want to overpromise and underperform. So 
I get performance anxiety, I guess. I'm just lazy. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I have depression, so I just don't want to do anything. I have days. mental It's illness. great. <laughs> I'm mentally ill. <laughs> so you can find the link to that in our show notes, or you can find it on our website at shockinglywicked.com. Britt, do you have anything else that you would like to say before we head out? No. <laughs> cool. That's a wrap. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.